Twelve years ago, Luke Bourne was a stats grad student at the University of British Columbia. Today, he's an owner of AC Milan, one of the best-known soccer clubs in the world. Luke is one of the most respected people in sports analytics. He's one of the nicest guys in sports analytics, and he has already put together one of the most interesting careers in sports analytics. This is Cade Massey, practice professor at Wharton, and on this week's Wharton Moneyball Highlights, we catch up with Luke, find out a little bit about his latest gig, and get the history on how he has put this together in such a short period of time. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week, and I am hosting on my own as all three guys are out and about doing other things. I have got the hour to myself, and I decided to do an interview with that hour, and I decided to do that interview with Luke Bourne. Some of you know Luke. Luke came out as a graduate student 12 years ago, worked at Harvard for a bit, was there in the beginning of the motion tracking revolution in sports. He was there when the NBA released their data to a little group at Harvard. He's built a heck of a career since then. He's worked inside clubs. He has trained PhD students. He most recently has moved into ownership. He's a part owner of AC Milan, as well as other other sports teams around the world in other sports. It's Amazing what he's done, and I'm delighted to get a chance to talk to him. Luke Bourne is one of the most respected people in sports analytics. He's one of the nicest guys in sports analytics, and he's put together one of the most interesting careers in sports analytics. I caught up with Luke last week in Sacramento, had a chance to hear a little bit more about what he's working on now and how he managed to get there in a pretty short period of time. Here we go with Luke Bourne. I am here in Sacramento, California, with Luke Bourne. Luke is a longtime sports analyst, and we are going to spend a little time catching up on his current work and how he got to where he is. Luke, good evening to you. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, and, and thanks for coming out my way. Absolutely. We are holed up, posted up in a Sacramento hotel lobby. We'll have a little elevator noise here and there, maybe some street noise. We try to get some distance from the front desk. But glad to take Luke anywhere I can find him. Luke, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a little lucky to catch you in country. I know you're bouncing around a fair bit these days. To, to start us out, why don't we just talk about your portfolio of responsibilities right now? Just to, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually want to understand how you got there and what it means and what you're learning. But just to set the stage, how would you describe your portfolio of work right now? Well, I, I just came from coaching U12 girls soccer. Does, does that count in the portfolio? <laughs> That's why we're here. That's exactly why I'm in Sacramento. <laughs> uh, so I, I really wear two hats. So the first is I'm co-founder of uh, Zealous Analytics. I co-founded that with Doug Fearing. That's a, a sports analytics company. We're currently about 60 staff, about a third of those with PhDs. Uh, so that's that's one hat that I wear, and the second is I'm part of the group that owns and operates two football clubs in Europe, one of those being Toulouse in France and the other being AC Milan in Italy. Okay. Even non-soccer fans have heard of AC Milan. That sounds like an interesting uh, ownership position to be in. We need to hear more about it in a little bit. Toulouse 
you know, we've heard of various things about Toulouse. Many people won't know anything about the Toulouse football <laughs> club. So can you say, just so we understand what you got going on, what, what league are they in? What's the situation with Toulouse over there? Yeah, there's some caveats that, that maybe we can get into later about. I'm actually not currently involved with, with Toulouse, but I can talk a little bit about what sort of the history over the last few years, which is that um, so a little over three years ago, we well, starting about four or five years ago, we started digging and in, in looking at various football clubs around the world, looked at honestly hundreds of them and all sorts of trains taking to the north of England and all that kind of stuff, ended up acquiring, <laughs> ended up acquiring Toulouse. Um, sort of right in, in the middle of the pandemic, they had just been relegated. And from what, what league to what league, and how yeah. many leagues are there over there? So, so every every country has its own sort of tier of leagues. So, uh, in France, you have League One, which is the top league. And league Two, Paris Saint Germain is the is yes, the top exactly. League one? Okay. Exactly right. Yeah, Lyon, Lille, uh, Marseille, Monaco. Those okay. are sort of the teams that. But PSG uh, being the but the one that most people would recognize. It had just been relegated out of that league into the second tier in okay. France, and we acquired it right after they'd been relegated. And was it like buying a distressed asset? Was it a, was it a fire sale? Kind of, yeah. We had looked at it a year earlier when they were sort of comfortably in in League One, and um, when it came time for relegation, of course, the, the price comes down. And I think the, the, that is the right analogy. You're buying a distressed asset, but you're buying one in a fantastic city with great resources and great infrastructure, and. Um, our thesis was very much, hey, take this, take this club, which was sort of down on its luck, and, and institute a lot of best practices and things we learned in other sports as well as from our previous experience in European football, and um, try and get re-promoted and have some success. What about on the research side? Because you've been, you say an academic, you can do academic research and not have a faculty position. So you've had faculty positions. Did your PhD at British Columbia, faculty positions at Harvard, came back to Simon Fraser, got tenure at Simon Fraser, again, a Vancouver school. I think this is Vancouver, right? Vancouver school. You have a zillion grad students. You have a zillion papers. Or is that still a part of what you're doing? The short answer is no. It's like it kind of had this phase of my career where I transitioned. The short answer is that my last PhD student was Javier Fernandez. Javier was the head of analytics for FC Barcelona. Mm-hmm. He finished his PhD um, it's about two and a half years ago. So when he okay. when he defended his thesis, that was the end of it. And um, okay. I'm quite deliberately at this point not publishing papers. And, and a big reason for that is that in the tail end of my academic career, it was all sports analytics research. And mm-hmm. now, instead of publishing this stuff, we're we're delivering it to partners. Right. Right, different different way to the temporal moment of value creation is, <laughs> exactly. is no longer. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do it. Let's hear a little bit about how you ended up in this place. Because again, it's it's. A, I mean, if I had sat down to do an interview with you four years ago, five years ago, we wouldn't have spent the first whatever twenty minutes talking about ownership of professional right. franchises around the world. That's right. How in the world do you go from, you know training doctoral students, doing academic research. You got into sports teams, but can we talk about some of the key moments in your development and your training and your experience that have led to this particular portfolio? Yeah, so so I started off wanting to be a prof- professor, and actually in a way that's still true. Like when I picture myself as an old man, I picture myself as a professor to this day. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, and I think... Now, this is a very much a tangent, but I, I think at some point I'll probably find some way to make that a Come part of my life. Again, I yeah. absolutely loved teaching, um, working with grad students. I thought 
you know, that was just like the highlight of, of my, the sort of few years that I had, particularly at Harvard when I had the, the core of the research group going there that led to all some of the work we talked about earlier. It's, that was like just an amazing few mm-hmm. years. And, and there's aspects of that that I absolutely loved, aspects that I despised, like the, the academic research, the, sorry, the, the publishing process. And, uh-huh. and uh, Well, hold on. To what extent have you, I hadn't thought about this before, but hearing you talk about the way you enjoy bringing people along and that process surely zealous has a little bit of this quality to you because you are the senior chief scientist at zealous you've got a big crew there now you get to hire people from around the world you and doug fearing who help run this thing and then you're pulling good work out of them and training them to some extent you're learning from them i know but at the same time you are the senior person it's not that different from running a lab group no it's, it's really not and in fact if, if you look at my path which was academia and then i worked with in a combination of working in front offices and quantitative gambling. But if you take sort of the the, the academic part and the working in the front office part, Zealous is like taking the hybrid of those two things, mm-hmm. essentially. So it's mm-hmm. it's doing what kind of looks like academic research, but maybe you'd think of it as like productionalized research, right? Because we're, we're delivering actual products and, and then doing that for sports teams. So mm-hmm. in a way, it's taking both of these... Um, taking the sort of the Venn diagram and, and taking the center of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're referring to your time at Harvard. And I think of that as really the dawn of tracking data in sports. Is that fair for me to say? So I, and here again, I'll, I'll, con- I'll continue to paint with a broad brush. I think of you and Kurt Goldsberry being somewhere in the same orbit when somebody lands access to the NBA tracking data. And that's the beginning of kind of everything. That's, that's right. This generation of sports analytics. That's right. Yeah. There's so much luck involved in where I am now. And, and one of those pieces of luck was um, just happenstance meeting Kurt Goldsberry right as he had been given the tracking data from the NBA. And, uh, you know, he's a geographer, so he he had done a lot of cool visualizations and stuff with it, but we really didn't know what to do with it. And, and him and I came together and, um, but by but, the way, is, we don't need to do the story on how Kirk got the data, but I'm kind of curious what the short version of that is. Why, why is Kirk Goldsberry the person who NBA decided to give data to? So I, I think the short version of it is that is he had done some really cool visualizations prior to that, okay. and it caught some okay. people's eye. And, okay. um, Kirk is an incredible communicator mm-hmm. of quantitative mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's read his work knows that that's true. And so, um, yeah, he got the NBA data. So there's, there's, I'm very sort of eyes open to the fact that a lot of what drove my early move into sports and a lot of the success I had early on was in some sense the luck of getting this data that no one else had, mm-hmm. right? Like I was on this path of, of studying uh, climate systems and sort of the movement of animals and the herding dynamics and, mm-hmm. and like all those ideas translated really well to sports, but like there's no question had I not had, had been given that data and had the luck of being given that data, there's, there's no way I'd be where I am now. It's extraordinary. So there is the the actual luck of the actual exchange but more broadly there's also the your developmental phase moment happened to line up perfectly when those data come out so you yeah I mean, and i'm not even a sports fan i'm still not so like <laughs> when i true? when i got that data for me it wasn't like oh finally i get to work in sports for me it was the richest space-time data i had ever seen yeah and so it was like from a scientific perspective it was the most interesting piece of data I'd ever come across. Yeah, so so just to co- contrast that for us with some animal data set and what would the what level of richness and what would the animal data set be 
and what level of richness would those data have? Yeah, a simple example would be like tracking seals, for example. So what they would do is they would strap GPS units to seals and and and, and multiple seals and, and sort of like a pack of seals, and they would and they would sort of track migration patterns and track their movement and so mm-hmm. on. And so you get mm-hmm. these like sporadic very with a ton of missingness and and sort of there's there's some interesting herding dynamics but you know the the movements of seals are not exactly a pick and roll you know in terms of the level of sort of coordinated action so Uh in basketball strategic is that no in basketball you get like teams are running dozens of sets with very sort of coordinated action and be able to sort of pull those things out and measure a player's you the fact that you have defense so you're measuring sort of like a defender's impact on the, how the offensive team is running their sets is just uh, the, the 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 challenge there. When you have you know ten actors interacting in space and time, it's just it's just fantastic. And then the density of the data. I mean, you're getting you get you know yeah. where everything's happening multiple times a second. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, right? In the early days, we even got the referees, and, and they sort of wised up to that pretty quickly that we shouldn't be shipping out that data because there's um, oh well. You know, they came, you know, there's lots of things you can do with that data, like say, oh, this person should have been able to make that call. Right. They didn't make that call. Right, right, right. And, um, so what was the chance of meeting between you and Kurt? Like, how would you describe why it is that you bumped into him at this exact moment? So you want to know how random it was. I had just been hired at Harvard. I just finished my PhD. I was just about to finish my PhD. And I, I was on a housing visit. So they, you know, they flew me out there to find a house and all that kind of stuff. So What year was it? This is 2012. Mm-hmm. And probably April-ish 2012. I'd already been hired, but, you know, it started in the summer. And so I'm there, and, and I took a couple of meetings when I was there and, and got my started to get my office set up and so on. And there was this professor from the geography department, and he was interested in talking to me because he was studying the spread of ancient Chinese literature through historical China by measuring characteristics of texts in different areas of the, of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. And... By total fluke, Kirk walked by, and, and I remember the guy I was meeting with, his name was Peter, looked over and said, oh, hey, Kirk, you should meet Luke. And Kirk, was, at the time, was sort of a visiting scholar or something at, at, at Harvard. And, yeah, so that, that happenstance meeting. By the way, why were the geographers and the statisticians in the same place? They weren't, but thankfully the, the department chair in the stats department, Jolly Meng, was broadly connected across the university. And so when... When I interviewed and they had someone, when he, when he sort of realized he had someone come in who was an expert in sort of spatial statistics, he knew that there were a handful of people around the university that would really find value in that. And so mm-hmm. um, right off the bat, I had a dozen or so meetings with people across the university. In their department. So they said, department. He, your chair basically sent you across the department. Which was, if, as an academic, if you want to like the ideal start to an academic career, it's like, your department chair sort of saying, hey, there's this person who has these amazing data and problems and, and, and they haven't been able to solve them and you'll be able to solve them for them. Right. So right. I got to work on all sorts of cool stuff. What a great quality in a stats chair. Yeah. You, because that's, that's what y'all do. You bring these tools and these models and you need interesting problems and data. And so a stat, the perfect stats chair is the one who's connected across the university. Yeah, outside of the stats department. Yeah, exactly, outside the exactly stats department. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Did Kirk say, oh... Uh, I just got this interesting data set. I mean, yeah, he, 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 I think his line was like, I just, I, I got this data set, just got it handed in. And he's like, I think he might've said, I don't know how to open it because I think it came as like a ton of XML files. Um, 
And Kirk is an incredible like visual uh, visualizer data, but he's not a programmer. Yeah. And so he had people that sort of had, were helping him with that kind of stuff. And so yeah, we we partnered up together and um, um, and you know we became good friends. He actually when we when I went on parental leave, him and his wife subletted out our apartment, so we became mm-hmm. good friends. Uh, mm-hmm. Good friends over time there. Okay, so this is obviously a key moment that pulls you into sports broadly, and it really was the dawn of tracking data and For sports sure. that generation of, of, of sports analytics carry us forward from there so some and I, I'm blindly taking steps here at some point you end up at AS Roma but I don't know how you go from where yeah but part of the reason this is confusing for people is because as is often the case with academics I sort of lived two parallel lives right I often had my academic appointment and then I was doing something on the side and that that was a combination of taking doing it during parental leaves or doing it during unpaid leaves of absences and stuff from the university so a lot of these things actually overlap. Yep. So, um, the 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 I was I was an academic, but through this I had a couple things. So so I, um, I the the main first thing that I did was I worked well. We, I did a bunch of consulting for NBA teams. That was sort of while I was still at Harvard, and then I spent um, almost two years with in quantitative gambling with Bob Vulgaris. So Bob was at the time the biggest NBA gambler, and. Had a, had a team of people sort of building models and, and, and understanding the game of basketball. And so I spent a considerable amount of time with him, learned a ton uh, about modeling sports as well as sort of the, the gambling industry, which is part of the reason I left. I didn't, didn't, didn't love that side of it. Is this is the guy he got in. Is, am I right that he got involved with the Mavericks at some point? That's right. Yeah. So he, he, he was, I, I don't know exactly how long, but he was certainly the, a, a key person of the Mavericks for a few years. And actually, a year or two ago, he bought a third-tier Spanish football club. So he's now also in, in, okay. in soccer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what do you consider to be another pivotal moment in your progression from gra- initially grad student, then faculty member, into where you are now? Yeah, I, I had all these sort of consulting-type things going on the side. So I ended up working for a little over a year with AS Roma. That was certainly an opening experience. I think when I moved down to the Kings, so, so I was living in Vancouver, as you said earlier, I was a professor at Simon Fraser, decided that I was going to leave that and do sports full-time. And that was like a big transition out of academia because really all the... Even though I was doing all these other things in sports, I kind of always had the academic, academic thing sort of going either on the side or on leave or whatever. Right. At this point, I kind of said, I'm dropping that behind me and, and I'm going to go into sports full time. And why? Sorry, why? Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a good question. I think a lot of the things that I... I mean, just to be clear, you're leaving a tenure position at a great school in the region of the world that you're from. Mm-hmm. And you dabble in these other places, but it's a big decision to walk away from that. So... Anyone who's been in academia knows that there's some, certainly some pros. There's a lot of pros, and, the, and I love the freedom. I still, to this day, don't think I could ever have a boss again. <laughs> right. um, as, as a very simple example, when I was at Harvard, my, my wife and I and my daughter just like up and went and spent six, six or seven weeks in Oxford. We didn't have to tell anyone. We just went and, and like spent six, seven weeks working with some colleagues there. and. Yeah. Just, you didn't tell anyone, you know. It's just <laughs> what job allows you to just make those kind of decisions. So a little spoiled, uh, abs- a little spoiled for sure, for sure. And and I'm preaching to the choir here. I realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things that I really did not like about academia. I didn't like. I think the 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 information dissemination process, primarily publishing, is like severely broken. Right. Um, so dealing with that and sort of like it just you know if if 
if I could have been an academic and well, say some say one level deeper on that, like in what way would you say it's broken? The information dissemination process, academic publishing is broken. In what sense? Yeah. So so the the sort of the peer reviewed um, the peer review process has certainly has some value, but for the beyond some like basic thresholding. It, it's basically like a, adding a random noise to the mm-hmm. to the dissemination process, mm-hmm. a, a random accept reject uh, mm-hmm. step. Um, you you like just you want broader. You want you want some minimum threshold and then broader dissemination and let the market decide. Let people exactly. debate. Let it get it out there. If it was up to me, I would have we I would have public, done all this work, um, presented at conferences, posted an archive, and moved on. Mm-hmm. Right, and then and, and granted, there are areas of academia that do that. That's how they operate. So, but stats as a whole was very much a there's these handful of journals and they want the very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also wanted to be a lot closer to the application. You know, I think when you're, when you're in academia, you sometimes feel like I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm really, I'm still like it. I'm, it's, I'm more than a half step away from the action. And, um, I wanted to sort of dive in full time. And, and mm-hmm. the other thing at the Kings that was really unique there is that, Vivek Ranadivi, the owner, had a vision to build out a, an analytics team. And that's something that, even though I'd built a group at Harvard, the idea of saying, okay, they had no analytics person or the person they had there was leaving at the end of the year and I was going to be able to go in and build something from scratch and be a part of something. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, it didn't quite turn out the way that, that I thought it was going, going to uh, for, for various reasons, some my own fault, some um, maybe you know not fully understanding what the role was going to be, but... But at the time, at least, it was like this is a chance to be part of something really mm-hmm. special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that a case where he just planned on investing a little more seriously than most teams that were investing in analytics at the time? And, you know, he has a, had at the time even a pretty mixed reputation. So you kind of knew what you were dealing with at some level. But it must have been tempting because of the resources and the presumed commitment. Then you did build out a big group, right? Yeah, I actually, so they flew me down to Sacramento, and I had done a visit uh, down here, and then um, I remember thinking, okay, they, they, they've made all these promises of what they want to do, and they have this great vision, but their actions don't reflect it. They had DeMarcus Cousins at the time, um, they're like, this is, they're, they're going to be stuck in this rut forever, and literally like three days after my visit, they traded DeMarcus Cousins. <laughs> And I was like, okay, maybe this is real. <laughs> like they had this star player who was, um, you know, a good player, but was was certainly limiting their ability to take the next step. And mm-hmm. so, um, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And 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 at the time, I, the other conversation I had with my wife was like, our kids are still quite young. At the time, they were like five, three, and one. And so, there's no no issue with moving them and if we come and I do my three year contract and I move back to Vancouver kind of no harm done uh-huh. even SFU even held the spot for me so I was technically on leave for those few years so okay. I mentioned earlier that I had left academia that's not quite true you, you, know, had, you, had, a, you had a backup plan if yeah exactly and, and yeah that's just the way I, I tend to always think about the various options and for me it was just like a pretty low risk yeah it makes all the sense in the world and you get to and you get to discover whether that's something you want to keep going into and in the end what I discovered was that I can't work for a front office. If I'm going to do this, I need to be the owner. Okay. Those are ballsy words to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's one thing to say that, but then, I mean, I'm sure many people have felt that and didn't subsequently become owners. So that's a heck of a... 
Yeah, well, position the, to take. there's of course a, a, the gap there is like about a billion dollars, right? <laughs> and so there are barriers. To it's, it's it's totally understandable why people might think that and see it's insurmountable. It, ultimately, if you if you have the vision, you have the expertise, and you can find the right partners, and then find the right financial backing, it's it's possible, right? There are mm-hmm. other people that have done this, right? So. Um, the folks that bought Southampton, for example, um, uh, about a year ago, this was essentially someone who was working for a club and said, "I'm going to go raise some capital and buy a team." And he found found a couple hundred million bucks of people who wanted to invest and back him, and went out and bought the team. And- so, okay, that it makes sense, but there have to be reasons that a group like that wants to invest in a person. So that that person had a story to tell of some kind or a track record of some kind. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all that. And, and look, it's it's not just me, right? We have a group of people together that have a, a broad set of expertise. Everything from you know what I do, player management, um, roster construction, through to others who have expertise in stadium builds and and commercial ops. So it was sort of the whole package of people mm-hmm. with this, these various experiences. And mm-hmm. and also, you know, we talked about Milan. We didn't go out and buy Milan day one, right? We started off with a much um, smaller initial foray into this which was which was to lose and so we were able to um sort of test our hypothesis in a way and mm-hmm. and, and learn a lot from that early experience without without sort of putting a billion plus dollars on the line look you guys were you guys looked around for a long time before you found the right opportunity at the time there weren't i don't you, this is the question how many investor groups like yourselves were doing that at the time and how many are doing it now it seems to me that there's been a sea change and now you know how now making freaking tv shows about these kinds of things um i feel like y'all got in a little bit ahead of the wave on this we, we did a little bit but this has been going on for some time in fact this is one thing that we've really had to reality check a little bit because we went in with all these theses about how we were going to get an edge and how we were going to be financially sustainable, how we were, how we were going to win and create a financial return for investors, all that kind of stuff, right? But then we had to be eyes wide open that there were dozens, maybe even 100 plus, but certainly dozens of American investors with fundamentally the same thesis or, or who had said the same thing before us and had just lo- totally lost their shirts. Okay. So, you know, in Americans who had gone in, bought a club, wrote checks for tens, 20, 30 million every year for four or five years. And then eventually said, I'm done. I'm out of here. And okay. Hold on. Let me, let me short a little bit. Is it possible that these are just, this is just dumb American money or dumb anybody's money. And, and what differentiates you guys is that you had a couple guys who could actually operate a club yeah, but, from a, from a sharp angle. Yeah. That's like, that's, that's the story I would tell. But the truth is that you have to realize that every human being is inherently overconfident in their own abilities. Mm-hmm. So we also have to realize that we ourselves are going to be overconfident about our own abilities. And sort of, even though we might think we have a bulletproof thesis, we realize that there's a lot of like unknown unknowns and a lot of things that we're just going to be wrong on. And... How, you say that from the comfort of having been successful with Toulouse, or were yeah, you like saying we, it? Were been, you saying it real time? <laughs> we were definitely saying it in real time, and, and and that's part of the reason we started with Toulouse. Like, started with this sort of pretty heavily distressed asset and something that we felt that we could really put our fingerprint on, and, and something we could work hard at and make some mistakes. And, and um, so, yeah, some of this is certainly hindsight bias, right? Looking back and saying, "Oh yeah, this is exactly why we did what we did." But at the time, definitely, we were. Um, we were confident in, in, in our ability to create success, but also um, 
very very sort of cognizant of of the history before us and making sure that we were in a position to sort of pivot maybe pivot isn't the right word but we were in a position to sort of adapt as quickly as we could on on the people look we we were very much of the thesis that if we can write the finances of this club then we're fine because teams go wrong typically in two ways right or owners go in two, typically one of two things goes wrong one they get the financial house in order and then they make bad on-field decisions and then they get unlike north american sports you have relegation so yeah. if you if you right size the budget, but you do poorly, if you just keep losing, you will get relegated and relegated and relegated again. Well, and one relegation is enough to kill your revenue, right? There's major revenue consequences. Major revenue consequences. So that, in a way, even though you get the financial situation right in the short term, in the long term, your financial situation is really really perilous. The other way this goes wrong is uh, they actually you can make great financial or great sorry great football decisions or great sporting decisions if you're having to write checks for ten million fifty million every single year mm-hmm. you're just not going to get a return on your investment mm-hmm. so when, when people talk about a club being sustainable in my mind that is fundamentally it it's it's creating a club which does not require consistent injection cash injections from the owner and you know that is a club that's going to be more um, resilient long term alright man good luck to you with all this stuff it's so much fun look yeah, forward to hearing you. more about it down the road but appreciate you making time for it yeah thanks for having me on okay that is our show for the week and that was a conversation with Luke Bourne one of our favorite people in sports analytics one of the most impressive people in sports analytics thank you guys for listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports enjoy your sports